Where are we? Let's pick up at verse 15. I've gone back and forth what I want to do with this, ch- this chapter. And last week I thought one, one thing, and this week I thought a, another thing. I was going to take, there, there are legitimately in the section I'm going to read, maybe three distinct subsections, maybe even four. But because of the, because of the nature of what I'm going to read, I just thought, pastorally speaking, it would be better if I took, just took a deep breath and we, we took the whole thing all at once. We'll get, get this harder chapter over quicker, kind of like pulling the Band-Aid. Though I think legitimately, if I was brave enough, we could take a few more, but I'm not. So let's, I'll read from 15 to the end of the chapter. It, it's a lengthy section, but um, God's holy word. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, you made for yourself high places of various colors, played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You took your beautiful jewels made of my gold, my silver, which I'd given you, and made yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them, Also my bread which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey which I fed you, you would offer before them for a smoothing over aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons, your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your hollow trees so small a matter? You slaughtered my children. You offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations, harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Then it came about after your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street. You made your beauty abominable. You spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lusty neighbors. You multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations. I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you. The daughters of the Philistines were ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea, yet even with this you are not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street, you made your high place in every square, and disdaining money, you are not like a harlot. You adulterous wife, who takes strangers instead of her husband, Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you are different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given to you. Thus you are different. Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out, your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to idols, 
Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all, all those whom you've loved and all those whom you've hated, and I will gather them together against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them so that they may all see your nakedness. Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hand of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of all your clothing, take away all your jewels, and leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you. They will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but you have enraged me by all these things, behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother, who loathed her husband and children. You are the sister of your sisters, who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father was an Amorite. Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you, and her daughters and your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom, with her daughters. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways, or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins. If you have multiplied your abominations more than they, thus you have made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you have committed. You Also you bear your disgrace in that you have made favorable judgments for your sisters, Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. Yes, be also ashamed and bear your disgrace in that you made your sisters appear righteous. Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, and along with them your own captivity, in order that you may bear your humiliation and feel ashamed for all that you have done, when you become a consolation to them. Your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters, will return to their former state, and you with your daughters also will return to your former state. As the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered, so now you have become the reproach of the daughters of Eden and of all those around her and the daughters of the Philistines, those surrounding you who despise you. You have borne the penalty of your lewdness and abominations, the Lord declares. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, 
you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when I receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth any more because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. Let's pray. O Lord God, I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give me grace, mercy, peace, and skill, Lord, to rightly divide this terrible, terrible word of yours. But you conclude with such a word of grace and mercy and kindness to such terrible people such as you represent here in this passage I pray Father that we would have open hearts and open minds all of us and that we would receive the truths that you have placed in your word here tonight and that we would remember you Lord Jesus Christ have redeemed and saved and cleansed us as the adulteress. We pray this in the Redeemer's name. Amen. It's a long, that's a long chapter. I think it's, I I, want to say I know it's the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel. Right away, I want to say something which is pretty evident. Well, a few things. I mentioned this morning that I preached through books, and that's true. I do sometimes get into a, after I finish a book series, sometimes I'll do like a mini series from Proverbs or Psalms or something, and I do topicals, but I still like to do exegetical series. Um, If I were a topical preacher, and I know why men are topical preachers, at least for some reason, it's easier to be a topical preacher for other people, not for me. I have a hard time with it. But if you're a topical preacher, you're never going to preach this passage. You just will not do this. So if you're topical, this week we're going to talk about love. Next week we're going to talk about hate. The week after that I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. The week after that we're not going to talk about what I don't want to talk about. And you hopscotch all around the Bible. But God the Holy Spirit didn't write the Bible that way. God the Holy Spirit starts with 1-1 and plows to the end of a book. That's how he writes it. And God says everything in this book is for our instruction. Everything. Hard things, painful things, easy things, pleasant things. Everything for us. When our children were little, we would have them read everything. Um, Everything. They would read even this. You think, well, they don't get it. They didn't get everything perfectly, but they understood something bad's going on. We we never stopped our kids from reading any of God's Word, ever. I I think that's a good practice, that we should read all of God's Word. It's a sad mark on the church, on the ministry, on the pulpit, when a man of God will not preach a portion of God's Word because they're afraid of God's people. That's why you don't preach this. You you do not you don't even read this. What church reads? What did we read? Fifty verses. Churches don't do this anymore. They used to fifty years ago. Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Baptist didn't make a difference. They'd read whole chunks of scripture. The word of God read and preached is the is is the means that God uses to. Why why the church won't read the Bible? It's because we fear men. Now with that. 
One of the reasons why the minister would say, I'm never going to preach this, because the language is so hard. Look at, the, look at this. Look at some of the, look at, I mean, look at some of the, what, 25? I mean, some of these, some of, this chapter, I'll just, I'll forecast this. This chapter in chapter 23 is the counterpart of 23. 23 gets even grosser. There are even grosser things that God says about Israel as under the figure of a woman, under a harlot, in chapter 23. So we're not done with this, but the language is the language is very very hard. The language is very hard. Part part of the reason a minister wouldn't want to preach this, one they're afraid of people, they're not afraid of God enough. And the other is and I and I'm sympathetic with this. I I myself have suffered with this a number of times. I actually stopped a series because I thought at that time I wasn't able to handle it. I stopped in Genesis 44. Oh, it was either Genesis 44 or Deuteronomy. It was, I forget which one. But I stopped because there was a portion I couldn't, I couldn't myself handle with pastoral skill. So I stopped. A man may come here, a minister, and say, I cannot preach this with decorum. So there may be a legitimate concern on the part of the minister. Because believe it or not, it's not as easy as you think just moving your lips and even reading this. Because you're thinking, now I have to explain it. Now I have to apply it. I don't think I can do that without sounding like I'm in a men's locker room. I think you can, and with prayer, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think you can, but I do understand the concern. Now, I will say this. The desire not to offend polite Christian company, though it's legitimate in one sense, I think it's illegitimate in another sense. And here's the reason I think it's illegitimate. I would say for the person that doesn't want to look at this text, let's say, and preach it, because you don't want to be indelicate to especially delicate ears and eyes and so on. I wonder then, are the the Christians that would be offended with the hardness of this, are they equally offended with their entertainment? In other words, will they let me see what they're watching for movies? You see where I'm going. So does the Christian that says, this is horrible, he's calling her a prostitute and all these spreading of the legs, this is horrible. It is horrible. It's horrible. This is awful. My ears are too pure to hear such things. Really? So what are you watching for movies? Are, are there any movies with illicit sexual activity in what entertains you? I already know the answer. You cannot. You can't even watch 1930s, 40s, 50s. I, I know the answer. You are not watching even a Disney movie with not some sexual innuendo in it. You're not. Or, or music. I'm so offended. I can't. I'm offended. Are, are you offended? If you let me listen to your music, are you offended with the music? Go to the beach. Walk down the beach. Are you offended with her? Walking down. No, I know the answer. So... One, what, who, who said it? Methinks thou dost protest too much. Is it Shakespeare, right? So when the Christian says, Pastor, please, we have delicate ears in the church. I don't think so, actually. I, I, I don't think so. I, and I'm not picking, I mean, this is why we keep the church nice and small and manageable. Because we preach this. I think the church is this. That this is the problem. This is the church. He's not talking to a Hittite. He's talking to a Jew and says, you're acting like a Hittite. So when the Christian church says, John, you can't. No. 
we need to hear this. The people of God need to hear, you're like a harlot. And, well, that's awful. Yes, because you're awful. <laughs> you're acting like an unbeliever. So I don't believe it when modern Christians say, I'm too delicate to, to hear sexually immoral things because I think we're so sexually compromised as a people. And obviously the connection between the, the spiritual idolatry and the sexual immorality is like this. And it's sexual uncleanness is a sign of apostasy. I, I think the modern church, by and large, is grossly sexually immoral. And therefore, they're spiritually apostate. So we need, we need to hear this. So, 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 so the church does need to hear it. And the other thing, which is why this is a good, necessary, the very end of the section... You have the bulk of the people are going to be judged. They're going to receive justice. But at the very end, what does God say? At the very end, I'm going to forgive you. This is what we have in Christ. So th this is the first Corinthians. You, if you've been here in this church five minutes, you know this is one of my go-to passages because I'm in it, which is why I read Psalm 51. I'm in Psalm 51, Psalm 32. I'm in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And such were some of you. Read it. Pornea leads the, leads, leads the list. So what hope for the pornea? What hope for the drunk? What hope for the liar? There. Such were some of you. So you have bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And at the very end of this section, God says, I'm going to forgive you. So what do we deserve for our pornea? Death. What does God offer us? His death, our life. And so when we don't look at this, we rob ourselves from understanding who and what we are by nature. We start to think we're better than we are. We start to think, well, I'm not this. No, we are this. Every one of us is this. Whether you think so or not, we're this. All of us. That's who Jesus saves. Jesus saves this person, us. Remember the story, Luke 7? Simon, no, is it, what was it? I think Simon the Pharisee. And he, he, he's looking at Jesus and the woman is wiping his feet. And he thinks within himself, if this guy, Jesus, were a prophet, he wouldn't even allow this filthy harlot to touch him. And then he says, Simon, I have a story to tell you. And then he says, say on, master. He says, a guy was forgiven five bucks and another guy was forgiven 50 million bucks. Which one will love more? And he said, the one was forgiven much. And he said, you're right. This woman is a filthy sinner, but she's been forgiven much and she loves much. So when we don't look at this, this is why the... The spiritual strength of the church is so anemic, it's so small, it's so sick. We don't realize what a Christ we have and what a salvation he has wrought for us. We've got to understand how, what a big sinner we are. So we think what a big Savior Jesus is. So one, let's not be man-fearers. And let's not pretend, I'm so pure, I can't even bear it. No, no. If I see you at the movies or at your house watching TV, I already know we're watching this nonsense. And so let's be honest with God because he already knows. And this is what God has saved us from. Plus, I like to keep the church small and manageable. Okay. For us to understand what's going on here, he's obviously, what's the text? I, what do I say? The proven consequences of spiritual adultery. For us to understand the business of adultery, we need to just at least remember what we talked about last week. You can't have adultery without having marriage. So the reason God is so incensed is because Israel hyphen Judah is his wife. He's married to her. She's married to him. So in order to understand how grotesque this sin is, we have to understand what marriage is, again, very briefly. 
In 1 through 14, just to, to recap, we mentioned that God is married to Israel. And she's the bride, he's the husband. The same truth is restated in, um, in the book of Ephesians. The wedding we're going to have in a couple of weeks. I just worked through my wedding homily, which I, I love working through wedding homilies, by the way. It's uh, Ephesians 5. Everybody takes from verse 22 to verse 36. I always throw verse 21 in there. Submit to one another as we submit to the Lord. And then we get to the woman, just so you know. And wonderful passage. We're married to Christ. But then the book of Revelation also depicts heaven, the eternal estate where there's no more sin, as us believers married to Jesus Christ in the estate of perfection. Our heaven's going to be an eternal Sabbath and an eternal marriage feast. When you go to a marriage ceremony, it, is a, it should be a happy time. And the festival afterwards should be a happy time. Heaven is depicted as that. Revelation 19. Then I heard something like the voice of a great thunder and the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad for the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of Christ and his bride has made herself ready. We're the bride. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to, to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So here's the idea. God is going to take a harlot who couldn't wear white on the best day of her life to her wedding. And by his blood, he's going to make her wear white. God takes the harlot and turns us into a virgin. Only God can do that. He makes us spotlessly clean and he marries us. And the eternal estate is this kind of a feast. So... God is married to his people. We mentioned last week the one flesh bond, this spiritual mystical amalgamation, which is mystical, this covenantal union where God is our head, we are his body, he's the husband, we are the bride. For us to understand why God is so angry at Israel for their idolatry, uh, in adult, adult, spiritual adultery, the... Um, the traditional marriage vows, and I just will say this, when I started the ministry, I would somewhat let people dictate to me what kind of vows they wanted. Shortly into my ministry, I decided that that was not a wise idea on my part. And then I, I soon instituted what I do now for the longest time. I only tr do traditional marriage vows. So if someone comes and says, I want you to say this goofy thing at my wedding because I, my wife, my wife wrote it to be to be wrote it. I say thank you very much, but I only do traditional because the traditional encapsulate. Um, and I'm not picking on you. I didn't say traditional marriage vows because it was a lady judge in a courtroom that married me, and it was goofy what we said. So I'm not picking on you if you made up your own. But I think the traditional marriage vows get at why God is is, is so. Um, incensed. Let me read two examples. You, you ready? You all are going to say this pretty quick. He, here is the vow that the wife in the traditional marriage vows, and this is what we say to God. I take you, God, for my lawful husband to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. That's one traditional marriage vow. One more. This is the wife to the husband. 
I promise to love and cherish you, in this case, God, in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. And here's the section. This might come from the Episcopalian. It says this. I I like this. In forsaking all others, keeping myself only unto you for so long as we both shall live. Let me read that one more time. This is why the husband is upset with the wife. Forsaking all others, keeping myself only unto you for as long as we both shall live. These are the truth. God is our lawful husband. He, he, he is the only one we're in this relationship with. He's only in this relationship with us. Our body, our soul, our mind, everything is to be devoted only to him. And when, it, when we say lawful husband, we're meaning this. Every other interloper, every other interloper is wicked, unlawful, and evil is what we're saying. And we are forsaking every other paramour, every other man, only him. We keep our body, our soul, all for him. Paul reiterates this principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The body of the husband belongs not even to the husband. It belongs to the wife. The body of the wife doesn't belong to her. It belongs to the husband. It's that forsaking all others only for him. And then God comes and says, I am your lawful husband. You are my lawful wife. You vowed to love only me in good times, bad times. You vowed to forsake all other gods, only me. And now she breaks faith. Does that make sense? So sometimes people say, well, I've been, you know, I'm not married, but I've been dating my girlfriend for like 15 years. So it's like marriage. Beloved, I'm you've been dating your girlfriend for 15 years and you're not married I'm not going to pick on anybody that is not even pop warner compared to marriage nothing it's not even the same thing you could be dating for 25 years it is not even like one day being married the relationship has is nothing like that you're not one flesh God has not created two into one there is no covenantal union it's not the same critter before God radically different radically 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 different The Bible says one flesh lawful, only him, only you. Totally different. I'm not not speaking against having a girlfriend. You kind of have to have a girlfriend before you have a wife, but it is not the same animal. And so what we have here in this whole section is God, the whole section. I'm not going to walk through every single thing. It would take me five hours. All he's doing is adding proof upon proof upon proof of Israel hyphen Judah's adultery. That's what the whole thing is. You've done this, you've done this, you've done, and it's proof with an S, plural, proofs. Proofs, excuse me. And so he's adding proof upon proof upon proof to the wayward wife of her waywardness. And I want to say this. When you think, why is this such a long chapter? Why wouldn't God just go, okay, here's the two instances you've acted like harlot, that's enough, and I won't belabor the point, the end. Why would he give like 60-something verses and go, you want another proof? Here. You want another proof? Here. You went with the Assyrians. You went with the Babylonians. You went with the Egyptians. You went with everyone under the sun. You were not satisfied by any man, and you went with every man. Here. Why would he do that in adding proofs of their sin? It's simple. Have you ever been accused of sin by another a person? You have sinned. 
someone comes to you and says, you have sinned. What, what, what's the visceral reaction of, of, of us as people? No, no, I haven't. No, no, I haven't. No, I haven't sinned. No, but I have proof. No, no, no you don't. No, look at the picture. That's fuzzy. That's not me. That, that, no, no, that's, I have different color hair. No, I, I reject your proof. I'm t- you know I'm telling you the truth. We, 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 vindicate, we are master vindicators of ourselves. No, no, no. I, I don't accept your proof. I'm not a sinner. You, I don't accept the accusation. But, 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 no buts. And even when a person says, yeah, okay, I've sinned. What comes next? This is why God goes, here's 63 verses of proof. What comes next when you say, okay, I did it. What's going to come next? We almost all, all of us do this. Yeah, but. So Eve, did you sin? Yes, I did. But the devil. Oh, yeah. Yes, I sinned, but the devil. Okay, Adam, didn't you eat the fruit? Yeah, I did. I did. God, remember that lousy, defective woman you gave me? And by the way, who gave her to me? You. What do we call that? Not accepting the sin. Not accepting the blame. We all do it. The Bible says we are master self-deceivers. Masters. We excuse it. We deny it. And I'm going to tell you something, beloved. When God says, here's the glossy photos, it's, it, the picture is sharp. You are not, you're, you're not going to guess that that's you sitting there doing that sin. You're going to be looking at the camera. When men rise up to accuse us, we, we deny it. When God rises up and says, by the way, I have proof. No one's going to deny it. Not one of us. Not one of us. So this is why we need this kind of a Christ. On earth, we, we deny it all over the place. And I will just tell you as an aside regarding sexual immorality and these kind of things, which is the sexually immoral person is the spiritually immoral person. I'm going to tell you something as far as sexual immorality. And I only know guys. I don't really know the girls. But I do know, I do know guys. Um, when a guy says, I, okay, I confess... They're only confessing to what they absolutely got caught. This is like 99%. I know there's the 1% that doesn't do this and praise God for the 1%, but 99% only are going to confess to what they get caught. And when they say, okay, I did it the one time, what that really translates is I did it a thousand times, but you only caught me the one time. And I'm still doing it right now and I'm lying to your face. That's why God has to go here, here. Oh, no. Here, here. And beloved, if God showed us all of our sin in a moment, would it be like five sins maybe? Maybe six? Maybe ten? We would swoon. We would pass out. If God says, here are all the occasions where you thought, said, did something which was obnoxious to my law, we would pass out. That's the point. That's the point. The, the chapter is a terrible chapter. But it, it's terrible because it's true. And it's terrible because we're terrible. And it drives us to Christ. So the proofs, he's obviously talking about the uncleanness. They've given themselves to other gods. Um, the, I know, I used to remember the, the, the Hebrew, but I, I, I remember the Greek better. So when we're talking about her committing unfaithfulness, he calls her a couple of times an adulteress. 
The New Testament uses this language, James chapter 4, James 4, 1 through 10. There's a nice little section there. You adulteress, you make yourself friends of the world, enemies of God, which is why I think the church, the church generically is somewhat that. There are two words for adultery that are sometimes used in Greek. One's moikeia and the other one's porneia. I'm butchering the Greek, obviously, but I'm, I'm correct with what I'm telling you. The technical term for adultery is moikeia in Greek. And she's a technical adulteress, and so are we, but she is. For adultery to occur, one of the parties has to be married. It either has to be the man party or the girl party or both parties have to be married. You have to be in a covenant relationship. You have to be married to commit moikeia. And that's specific. It's sexual uncleanness among a married person, someone in a real marriage. And then the broader term for sexual uncleanness in Greek is porneia. So singles can commit porneia and and marrieds can commit porneia. Both are the breach of the seventh commandment. Jesus uses both words in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter 19. So moikeia, sexual uncleanness by a married person, and then um, porneia by a single and or by a married. But both are breaches of the seventh commandment. She's doing, she, she is the moikeia. But the reason I, I, I bring that out is if you have a girlfriend and she commits porneia against you and the, you're the boyfriend, you both need Jesus Christ and you both need to repent because you shouldn't be doing anything with her either because she's not your wife. So whatever you're doing with her is porneia. And if she goes outside of your little porneia relationship to commit porneia with another guy, she's committing extra porneia. But you're committing porneia because you're a boyfriend and not a husband. The reason he says you're committing these things and it's grotesque to me, the marriage aggravates the sin. It's worse for a married man than a single man to commit um, uncleanness. I'm not vindicating the sexual uncleanness of a single person. I'm just saying it's worse by a married person because you introduce the notion of marital unfaithfulness. Does that make sense? This is that question and answer that I love so much, 151, uh, larger catechism, question 151. You broke faith. So the boyfriend and the girlfriend never said to one another, I forsake all others. They may set it in their apartment when they were drunk, but that's not a marriage. So so this is the, that that moikeia coupled with the porneia idea. And so that's what's going on um, uh, here. There is the unfaithfulness uh, to her bride. I know some people, I'll just say this as an aside, I just thought of it. Some people say, well, you know, that's not entirely true because you can be one flesh with a prostitute. And what they're referencing is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's not true. Um, You are not one flesh with a prostitute. You're not one flesh with your girlfriend. You're one soma, which is sin. Um, The Bible is very, very specific. It's one, one flesh is sarks in the Greek. And it's only reserved for Adam and Eve, Christ and the church, or husband and wife. Never for a boyfriend and girlfriend, never with a man who's not his wife. Never, never, never one sarks. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when it says you're one uh, with a, a prostitute, it's one soma, body, which is a sin. And the whole idea is remember your one flesh marriage, stop messing around with a prostitute. Um, that's the right understanding of this. So it's an aggravation. And so the, the way that we aggravate our sin is by the person doing the offense, that's Israel, by the person being offended, that's God. And the nature of the quality of the offense is that it, it is, um, it's, it's adultery, essentially the idolatry. Now, 
again, the lengthy chapter of proof upon proof upon proof. There's another thing that people do, and this, this occurs with wives and husbands when some unfaithfulness has occurred in a, in, a, in a marriage. This is very, very common, is to do this. And this is, and again, I'll give you the wife's side, how she excuses her adultery. When the wife runs off with the plumber, this is one of the ways that she excuses her adultery. She says, the reason I ran off with the plumber is you're such a bad husband. That's how they do it. And I know it, it happens the other way with the guy to the girl. But with the girl, she runs off with a piano teacher, and then she comes and says to the church, the reason I ran off with a piano teacher is two things. The husband always did these bad things to me and never did these good things for me. You, you see that, the two general ways? The reason I went to my paramour is because my husband is bad. He didn't give me good, and he only gave me bad. And God says, but I'm your husband. I only took away all your bad, and I only gave you all the good. He takes away the excuse. What I'm telling you is a fact. What I'm telling you is a fact. This is how women that break faith with their husbands do it. They don't own that it's their sin. They say it's the husband's sin. And this is what the woman says, is your sin, God. And God says, you know what? It's not my sin. I have no sin. I took away all your sin. I washed you. I cleansed you. I made you holy. I made you beautiful. I married you. And I only did good to you. I preserved you from your enemies. You remember the Egyptians. You remember the Babylonians. I sustained you in the wilderness. And look at what you did. It's the perfect husband. And this all is meant to make the wife do what? Repent. Own her sin. If we don't own our sin, this is why people think, well, why are you talking about sin? And, and this makes people feel squirmy and bad. If people do not own their sin, their sin, they never come to their Christ. If it's always, been, if it's always the other guy, and will never say, I am the man, you'll never come to, to Christ. No one who doesn't believe the bad news for themselves ever believes the good news of Jesus Christ. Never. So if we don't go, we are the harlot, we never say, thou son of David, forgive me. And God wants to bring Israel to her senses to say, look, at, I'm the best of husbands. And you went from this, this fellow to this fellow. And that's the whole idea. You went running to the Assyrians, you, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. You went running to them. This is a principle. Sin never satisfies Sin never satisfies us. Yeah, there's a saying, if one woman won't satisfy you, a thousand women won't satisfy you. If your wife won't satisfy you, a thousand women will not satisfy you. And that's fact. And that's, this, that's Israel. One husband wouldn't satisfy her. A thousand false gods would not satisfy her. Why? St. Augustine, we've been created by God for God. We're only satisfied with the lawful husband the places to return, to return, to return. All of this, though is super painful, super hard language. It's designed to, and he says, you don't remember the days of your youth. It's caused for the wife to repent and to return. And he, he talks about, I don't want to unpack it. I don't want to go too long. She's taken all of these wonderful gifts that God has given her and look at what she's done. She's turned around and used them to commit spiritual adultery which is idolatry this is the abuse of god's gifts and in one way perhaps i could preach a sermon on this but i'm not going to this is the this is the danger of temporal prosperity 
God has done all of these wonderful things. And then temporally, he's given her health, beauty, wealth. And we, we, we as Christians think, if I could just be healthier and wealthier and more stuff and more beauty and more honor, then I'd be a better Christian. The exact opposite is true. J.C. Rowell said we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't um, envy rich people. We should weep for rich people. It's so bad for your soul. The best that Israel was was when she was under the yoke. And the moment she becomes luxurious and beautiful and outwardly prosperous, she's instantly idolatrous. Look at a Christian. You take a Christian and shove him. You take a Christian and shove that Christian in a crucible. Read Martin Lloyd Jones on this. You stick him in a crucible. Is he a better Christian than when you stick a Christian in a mountaintop and he's walking around happy as a lark? When is he better? When he's in the crucible. And she grows. She grows worse. This is that when you're fat and sleek like Jeshurun. And so he sends at the very end, and I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to give you to your lovers. I'm going to give you to these pagans. And what are they going to do to you? Oh, but they're my friends. Oh, really? Is your paramour your friend? Really? The guy who's not your husband, you think he loves you? You think he's your friend? I'm going to give you to him. Let's see how he treats you now. Well, he's beating me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's beating me. Oh, yeah. He won't even feed me. Oh, yeah. No, he won't feed you. He's abusing me. But he used, to, he used to say he loved me. No, he hates you. He hates you. Yeah. God sometimes, I have a person in my family that hates when I say this, but it's true. God sometimes will chastise us for our sins, by our sins. You're drunk, you're going to be chastised by your drunkenness. You're sexually immoral, God's going to chastise you with your sexual immorality. There, there you go. And God says, you're an idolater, I'm going to chastise you with idolatry. You want to be a Gentile? They're going to rule over you. And then, and then he says, I'm going to put some of you to death. What's the penalty for sexual uncleanness? What's the penalty in the Bible for sexual uncleanness? For pornea, what's the penalty? It's death. What's the penalty for a married man or a married woman breaking faith sexually with their spouse. What's the penalty for that? So what should happen to them before? What should happen to this woman? You see the language? Every man that walks by, you give yourself to. What should happen to her? What's the divine wage? What should happen to her? Death? Death. Why, why are we not, why am I not pounding the pulpit saying, kill her, Lord. She deserves divine justice. She's a, I want to say a bad word, but She's a harlot. Give her what she deserves. Why am I not saying that? Me. It's me. And what does God say at the very end? They all, they all deserve to die. Every last one of them deserves to die. But I'm going to save some. Justice on some. Objects, vessels of wrath that magnify God's justice. God is not doing any crime by bringing justice upon people like this. He magnifies his justice. But then God says right away, but I'll save some. I'll have mercy on some, on my objects of mercy. And the objects of mercy, us, these women, unclean, we're looking at the others that receive God's justice for the very same crimes. They did what we do. 
And they got death, and we got life. Beloved, that magnifies the mercy of God to the vessels of mercy. That's our Christ. That's what he does for us. May God be um, pleased with the preaching of his word. Our final hymn.